last night I spoke about going to practice with Sairo Tejaniya in the monastery in Rangoon. But that was in 2004, and in 1990, uh, I went to see his teacher when I was still a monk in Burma. I went to see his teacher, but it happened this way. I'd been in Burma for about five years, and I was thinking about leaving and coming back to the States. And these two Burmese women came to my dorm where I was staying in the monastery, and they said, oh, before you go back to America, you've got to meet our teacher. And every Burmese family, every Burmese person has a, has a Sayadaw, uh, an elder monk that is their spiritual guide, their family therapist, their favorite uncle, their community organizer, the person that kind of takes care of the family. And uh, in the course of my time of being in Burma, well, I'd met a lot of Sayadaws, and a lot of people that introduced me wanted me to meet their teacher. So I wasn't really that interested because I just wasn't. <laughs> so I just said, no, 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 I don't, I don't need to go meet him. They said, oh, yeah, yeah, yes, you, yes, you do. You really should meet him. So they were really persistent. So I said, okay, okay. So the appointed day came and they showed up with the truck and the pickup truck and I got in the back, got in the front and they got in the back. And off we went to uh, visit him. But before we went, they told me about him. They said that uh, that was in 1990, about in 1948, that was quite a while before, <laughs> he was chosen by Mahasi Sayadaw to be the first teacher, meditation teacher at the meditation center uh, that I'd been practicing at. So he was well known as a pretty, pretty astute meditator, even when he was quite young. And so Mahasi Sayadaw asked him to come teach at the meditation center that it was set up for lay people. So he was teaching, and after he'd been teaching for when the meditation center opened, people started to come. And after a few years, there was a lot of people, hundreds, thousands of people coming to this monastery, and he was really busy teaching. So he was um, he asked Mahasi Sayadaw if he could be relieved of his responsibilities and go just do his own practice. And Mahasi Sayadaw said no. And in the way in the way the monastics work, you know, your your superior um, can kind of makes decisions for you. So he kept teaching, and after a few more years, he went to Mahasi Sayadaw and asked him again if he could be relieved of his teaching responsibilities and just go to his own practice. And again, Mahasi Sayadaw said no. So he kept teaching, and after he'd been there for ten years. He went to Mahasi Sayadaw for the third time, I heard, I've heard, and asked him if he could be relieved of his duties because there was so much teaching and so much administrative responsibilities and tens of thousands of people were coming annually to this, to this meditation center. It was just right out straight. And this time, and there's something magical about three times in Burmese culture or Buddhist cultures, uh, Mahasi Sayadaw said, okay, you can, you, can be, you can go on your own way. So we went to the outskirts of Rangoon, what were then the outskirts of Rangoon, and found a, a little plot of land next to a monastery there, and he made his own monastery. And he'd been living there since 1959 or 60 for 30 years. It was now 1990. And in the course of his time there in this little piece of jungle, the suburb of 
Rangoon had expanded to surround him completely. And the people that moved that suburb were people that wanted to be near him so that they could get his teachings to practice. So he just had this small monastery and had a few monks living with him. But there was this huge meditation hall that the lay people had built so that they could do their, you know, they, they had to work during the day. And then at night they would come home, make up a dinner, and then go to the monastery and practice uh, sitting and walking. And he would give a Dharma talk and they'd practice till late at night. Then they'd go home, sleep, go to work the next morning, come back the next evening. So they were householders like us, but they had a monastery right in their neighborhood or they moved to that neighborhood so they could have this opportunity. And so he stayed there and he was kind of the community monk. And he was really evidently quite a good monk because he lived a very simple life, renunciate life. And he wouldn't, even though he was offered much, he was offered a lot of uh, opportunities to build a pretty fancy building, you know, buildings for his monastery and have more monks and pave the road going into it and get electricity. He didn't, he, he just lived in this little wooden shack and he had a few monks living in wooden, little wooden shacks. And uh, for a long time, he wouldn't have any electricity, no paved roads, no cars, no phone, just like at the time of the Buddha. And his mind was really evidently pretty powerful because the sisters, the two sisters were telling me that there were many times that they or someone they knew would go to see him, you know, with a problem or a question or to offer dana, a meal or something. And he would reveal to them their mind before they had said anything. Oh, he would tell them why they were there or he'd tell them, tell them what they had brought him for lunch. So this was just his way of letting them know that uh, you can't get away with anything, <laughs> or something like that. So he was pretty renowned as being pretty, pretty special in understanding the mind and how to guide the mind. So I went and see him, and we went in, and uh, I did my bows, and he talked to one of the women for a while, and then he asked me what I was there for. And I said, well, I'd been in Burma for five years, and I was about to go back to the States, and I just wondered if he had any advice for me. And he just looked and he reflected for a little while. And he said, you know, when you go back, just do your practice. If you do your practice, whatever else happens will be okay. That's all. That's all he said. But while I was sitting there, I got hot. And uh, my glasses fogged up kind of steamy because it's hot and humid in Burma. So I took off my glasses and I was using my robe to kind of clean them. You don't use a monk's robe to clean anything. But he didn't, you know, criticize me or anything. He just handed a, 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 like a towel, tissue towel or something to me so I could clean my glasses without using my monk's robe, which is quite disrespectful to use your monk's robe to, to clean anything. And this is the way that he used to teach, by example, not by being critical, but just showing you a better way to do things. So I was really impressed with how simply he lived and how sincere and honest he was. So I asked if I could come practice with him. Now at this time in Burma, you couldn't do that. It was, there was so much government restrictions on anything. You, couldn't, you could hardly move around or travel. But nevertheless, I wanted to go practice with him. So he said, oh yes, okay. So I went back to my monastery and in order to get permission, I knew that 
I couldn't get it from my monastery. They'd never give me permission to go. So I went to the government people. And I just took, just, I took a taxi and a, and a temple boy to the, the Department of Religious Affairs and said, I want to go practice and, with this monk. Can you, can you give me permission? And they did. So I went. And uh, I was going to stay for a couple of weeks, two, two and a half weeks. When I got there, he said, well, since you've only got such a short time to practice, you can practice in my practice cottage. So out back of his cottage, there was this long room, maybe 60 feet long, about five feet wide, a bed at one end, a toilet at the other end. That's where he would go. And the windows were such that you could only look, at the, look out them. You could see the ground right next to the building, but you couldn't see out sideways. You, know? you couldn't see anything. So there was no visual distraction and nothing. You just stay in there, you sit at one end, you walk back and forth, you sit, you walk, sit, you walk like that. So I said, okay, what time do we go on alms round? And he said, well, we go at whatever time it was, but you don't have to go. He and the other monks would go and they would bring me food, so I didn't have to go out for alms round. So I went in the, I went in the, the place to practice, and you know, as practice goes, after a couple of days, you get kind of like you want to break, or you want to, you know, you want to kind of take a look around, or you know, something. So after I'd been there for you know four or five days or something, I was just in this, well, seeing anybody just inside. I thought I would go out, so I went to the door to go out, and I opened the door to step out, and he was standing right there at the <laughs> outside my door. And I go, oh, okay, hello, <laughs> closed the door, went back inside and continued practicing. So I was practicing and walking back and forth, sitting, walking as many hours a day as I could. And after another four or five days, now I've been in there 10, 12 days or something, I wanted to go out again. So I said, okay, I'm going to go out again. But you can't see out, you know. So I went to the door, I opened the door to go out. He's right there. <laughs> now this is the kind of guy that taught Utejaniya, because this is Utejaniya's teacher. So you can imagine if you go to him with your mind, telling him about your meditation practice, what are you going to say? Do you need to say anything? It's clear that he knows what's going on. But he was very, uh, Utejaniya has, has told me that He's very kind, very uh, gentle, and he would ask a lot of questions. And for those of you who practice with Utejaniya, you know, he asks a lot of questions. Like, what's going on in your mind? How do you know it? You know, what does this make, how does this make you feel? Uh, what does it do to your mind? How does it feel in the body? Everything, anything to keep looking. And when he would ask Utejaniya about his practice, Utejaniya would tell him what's going on. And uh, mostly all they say is like, oh, is that so? Is that so? And Utejaniya has told me that sometimes he'd ask a question, Utejaniya would give the answer. And, uh, and uh, Shui Yumin would say, oh yeah, just, just keep looking, just keep looking. Even if what Utejaniya was saying was wrong, wrong understanding, wrong practice, everything, he wouldn't tell him. He'd just say, well, just... You just keep practicing, keep practicing. Later, Sayadaw Tejaniya would realize, oh, that was totally wrong. You know, what he was doing or how he understood something was not right. And then when he would tell Sui Yumin, his teacher, oh, 
Now I understand it would be like that. Then Sri would say, oh, that's better. That's better. <laughs> but that's all. Not, not telling you what you're supposed to see or how you're supposed to understand, but letting you understand for yourself, really coming to rely on your own experience for um, under, learning how to understand things correctly. There's more, but just to keep it short, when I was practicing with Utejaniya, oh, several years, oh, one other thing. So I was a monk there, and I was practicing. When I came back to the States, somebody asked me to write an article about my time in Burma. So I wrote about my two and a half weeks with Shuiyu Min. And it got printed in some newspaper here at IMS, and it got spread around the world, and some people in Sri Lanka found it, and they printed up many copies of it, and it got distributed, and it just got it just got out. Ten years, I think it was in 2000, ten years after I'd been there as a monk, I went back to Burma. And I asked about him, like, where is he? What's going on? And it just so happened that he was in the hospital at the, the day I was there asking. And a, uh, a translator that I used to use was a doctor who said he was going to go see him and asked me if I wanted to go. And I said, yeah, I'd like to go see him. Now, I'm ten years older. And I'm now a layman in lay clothes. I'm not a monk. And I have hair and everything. Huh? And I don't speak any Burmese. And Saito, Shuiyuman Saito, doesn't speak any English. So we walk into the hospital room, and he's kind of propped up in bed. And I go in and do my bows. And he looks at me, and he says, in Burmese, it was translated, he says, You're the guy that wrote that article about me, aren't you? <laughs> It's like, it's like, you know, when somebody knows your mind that well, better than you do even, it's like, what can you hide? It's like, why, why be ashamed? Why be embarrassed? Anything. It's just like, your mind is just like all over you, you know? So, there's one more story. Another six or eight years after that, I don't know, maybe 2005, four or five, maybe four or five years, I was practicing over at the forest refuge doing a retreat and just kind of doing my own thing. And, you know, they ring the lunch bell and you come from your room down into the dining room. Came into this dining room and sometimes the people who are offering the meal that day are standing there to just to see people go through the line or to offer the meal. And there were these two women there. I don't know, maybe Vietnamese women. And when they saw me, they were like, they're pointing and it's like, yum, yum, yeah, it's like that. And I was like, I, I didn't know these people. I didn't know what they were talking about. But after I ate, I went in the kitchen where they were and I said, uh, do you know me or am I supposed to know you or what? And they said, well, you're, you're Ubuddha Rikita, aren't you? The, the monk Ubuddha Rikita? I said, yeah, I used, I used to be known as Ubuddha Rikita. And they said, you know, you wrote that article about Shwayumin Sayadaw 20 years ago or 15 years ago, you know? And one woman says, when I read that, I knew this is the monk for me. This is the one. She lived in Maryland. So she got her friends to go to Burma to practice with him. And at that time, he was still living in the monastery where I saw him. Just this old, little old rundown place. But more people were coming. A lot of Vietnamese people were going to see him. So he needed a new monastery. She said, I haven't been able to confirm it, that she and her friends donated the money for the new monastery. 
so that they could have more space when they went there to, to practice with him. Now I go back to that monastery and practice with in France too, in Carol, to practice with Saito Tejaniya, because the Shwayamin Saito has passed away. But the teaching or the tradition of that kind of mindfulness of mind or awareness practice has been you know, kind of carried on by Saito Utejaniya. And I think he's also maybe pretty good like Shwayamin Saito. So now, you know, you really, really, the teachings that we're offering are same thing, trying to offer as best we can trying to offer you the same kind of teaching that Shui Yumin Sayadaw offered me and Utejaniya, and that Utejaniya has offered some of you, and in the books that you have to read also. These are the teachings of the pointing out the awareness of mind, or mindfulness of mind, that is so important for living in harmony and developing the mind and really understanding the way things have come to be. So thank you. <laughs>